Welcome to Snap Sessions, an episodic podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name's Doug Nunn. I'm joined by Techmeister Marshall Downtown Brown and voiceover colossus Ken Krause, and by our artist of the show. Snap Sessions presents Episode 25, Our Silver Jubilee. Featuring an interview with British landscape architect and town planner Steve Lime Jowers, as well as a tribute to musical parodist Weird Al Yankovic, and Recycling Recycled, a report on recent changes in worldwide recycling practices. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Weird Al Yankovic tribute. That was not Michael Jackson performing Beat It. That was Weird Al Yankovic's massively successful parody, Eat It, also performed in that big hit year of 1984. Yes, Weird Al Yankovic, the most popular song parodist in modern musical history. An artist who has been releasing song parodies for the last seven presidential administrations who along with Michael Jackson and Madonna has top 40 singles in each of the last four decades, who has recorded more than 150 musical parodies, and a musician seemingly obsessed with food in multiple tunes. He has sold more than 12 million records, won five Grammy Awards, and gained a further 11 nominations. What a career! And mostly recognized for musical parodies. Amazing! Weird Al Yankovic was born Alfred Matthew Yankovic, an only child, in Downey, California in October 1959. He was raised in nearby Linwood and was almost smothered by his parents, especially a mom who seemed deathly nervous of little Alfred getting too far away from home. He was quite bright and went to kindergarten a year early, and by the second grade his teacher decided he was bright enough to skip another grade, so he spent most of his school years being two years younger than his classmates. He was skinny, awkward, and deeply nerdy. When a door-to-door accordion salesman showed up just before young Alfred's seventh birthday, his life changed. Mom and Dad Yankovic bought him an accordion, supposedly because they thought the instrument was destined to revolutionize rock and roll. And because Al had a very short leash, he had plenty of time to practice. Al Yankovic became an accordion prodigy. Alfred was becoming a very good accordion player, was naturally terrific in school, especially at math, but he still didn't get out much. But even in one's room, there are things a young boy can accomplish. 
young Alfred discovered Dr. Demento's syndicated radio show. Hello there, this is Dr. Demento. We're on the radio here. Filled with parodies, goofy songs, and all kinds of novelty hits. And despite the fact that Mrs. Yankovic had banned Alfred from listening to Dr. D, sometimes fate intervenes. Around this time, Dr. Demento happened to come to Linwood High to speak, and Alfred snuck him a homemade tape of original and parody songs on the accordion recorded on what young Yankovic called a cheesy little tape recorder. Demento was impressed and played his first song parody, Belvedere Cruising, followed soon thereafter by My Bologna. person does deserve special mention. The man who gave me my start and exposed my music to a nationwide audience on a syndicated radio show. The one and only Dr. Demento. Dr. D would play my stuff on the radio back when I was just a teenager. Back when I was recording songs in the bathroom because I couldn't afford a real recording studio. In fact, my first big hit on his show was a song called My Bologna, and it was actually recorded in the bathroom across the hall from my college campus radio station. Ooh, my little hungry one, hungry one, open up a package of My Bologna. The next year, I performed the Queen parody, Another One Rides the Bus, live on the Dr. Demento Show, and it became his most requested song ever. Hey, gonna send by you, Another One Rides the Bus. A couple years and a few incriminating Polaroids later, I was able to land my very own recording contract. You know, I don't think there's any way I can possibly repay the good doctor for everything he's done for me. But as a small token of my appreciation, just because I know it means a lot to him, every Sunday afternoon in the park, I give him a horsey ride. Just before turning 17, the awkward young Yankovic headed for Cal Poly to study architecture, and he began working as a DJ at KCPR, the university's radio station. He had easily earned the nickname Weird Al already at this point, for pretty obvious reasons, and the parodies really started to flow. One after another for Dr. Demento and the student radio station. First there was... And then came... Baby, I love Rocky Road, so won't you go and buy half a gallon, baby? I love Rocky Road, so have another triple scope with me. Ow! They tell me ice cream junkies are all the same. This was a time when popular music was entering the MTV era. This time of video kill the radio star was perfect for Weird Al Yankovic, who happily not only parodied songs, but parodied the videos rock stars and bands were making. He followed his shot-for-shot parody of Jackson's Beat It music video with a terrific parody of newly minted star Madonna's Like a Virgin hit. It was, of course, called Like a Surgeon. 
For a while, Yankovic's career took off. He was in demand on TV, especially MTV, with Weird Al TV specials over the next few years. Yankovic not only made music videos, he also directed the videos, both for himself and for other artists. For a while, it seemed Weird Al Yankovic had become the king of the music video and found a place for himself on MTV. But inevitably, there was a little letdown here and there. Then, Kurt Cobain and Nirvana entered the scene with grunge music in the early 90s. Nirvana's Smells Like Team Spirit soon became Weird Al Yankovic's Smells Like Nirvana, with lyrics like, What is this song all about? I don't know what I'm singing. controversy followed in the mid-90s when Yankovic parodied Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio with his ridiculous and fairly unexpected Amish Paradise. Supposedly, Coolio's label gave Yankovic the idea that Coolio had granted him permission to record a parody, but Coolio later said he never did. At any rate, Coolio accepted royalty payments and eventually said he considered Yankovic's parody funny as shit. See what you think. As I walk through the valley where I harvest my grain I take a look at my wife and realize she's very plain But that's just perfect for an Amish like me You know I shun fancy things like electricity At 4.30 in the morning I'm milking cows Jebediah feeds the chickens and Jacob plows Fool, and I've been milking and plowing so long that Even Ezekiel thinks that my mind is gone I'm a man of the land, I'm into discipline Got a Bible in my hand and a beard on my chin But if I finish all of my chores and you finish thine Then tonight we're gonna party like it's 1999. Let's bounce to the end and listen to the final chorus. My, my, this here Anakin guy Maybe Vader someday later Now he's just a small fry And he left his home and kissed his mommy goodbye Saying soon I'm gonna be a Jedi Soon I'm gonna be a Jedi We were singing here Anakin guy Maybe Vader someday later Now he's just a small fry 
He left his home and kissed his mommy goodbye Saying soon I'm gonna be a Jedi Weird Al has built an extraordinary fan base over the years, and his live concert performances are the stuff of legend. What Yankovic describes as a rock and comedy multimedia extravaganza, with a crowd that ranges from little kids to old timers. Typically, a Yankovic show will feature recent hits, a medley of parodies, and many costume changes between songs. And Hawaiian shirts. Hundreds, maybe thousands of Weird Al fans dressed in classic Hawaiian shirts. In fact, There are photos of Yankovic standing in a Hawaiian shirt in front of hundreds of his fans, also all dressed in Hawaiian shirts. Let's let Sam Anderson of New York Times Magazine describe his evening at a Weird Al show. Long before showtime, the Weird Al fans started streaming in. The vibe was lighthearted reverence. It was a benevolent Weird Al cosplay cult. There were so many Hawaiian shirts that it felt like an elaborate code, some secret language composed entirely of loud patterns. Parrots, hot dogs, palm trees, flowers, cars, accordions, pineapples, whales, bananas, sunsets. Everyone was so floridly mismatched that they seemed paradoxically to be matching. A great harmony of clashing. I saw Weird Al t-shirts from ten tours ago. Weird Al hats covered with Weird Al pins. Every possible colorway of checkerboard vans. Down towards the stage, Hardcore fans greeted one another like relatives reunited at a wedding. Ages seemed to range from 80 to 4. They see me mowing my front lawn. I know they're all thinking I'm so wide and nerdy. Think I'm just too wide and nerdy. Think I'm just too wide and nerdy. Can't you see I'm white and nerdy? Look at me, I'm white and nerdy. I want to roll with the gangsters. They're so far, they all think I'm too wide and nerdy. Think I'm just too wide and nerdy. Yes, like us, that is, all three Snap Sessions bros, Weird Al is a proud nerd, and he was very good at cultivating a nerd fan base. And he has been downright wonderful in his awkwardness, as you can hear in 2006's White and Nerdy. But these songs aren't easy to write. Weird Al is super studious about his parody writing. Listen to Sam Anderson's musings from an article in the New York Times this spring. But it turns out that Weird Al approaches the composition of his music with something like the holy passion of Michelangelo painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Looking through the white nerdy file felt like watching a supercomputer crunch through possible chess moves. Every single variable had to be considered in every single line. The song begins with a simple sentence. They see me mowing my front lawn. And even here, Yankovic agonized over lawn versus yard and my versus thee. He sifted through phrases and gradations so small they were almost invisible. Escher's really still my favorite MC. Tell ya Escher's still my favorite MC. Escher's my favorite MC. Escher's still my favorite MC. MC Escher's still my favorite MC. MC Escher is my favorite MC. You know Escher's my favorite MC. You know Escher's still my favorite MC. So we find that Weird Al Yankovic takes his art as a parodist seriously. He is a downright diligent songwriter. Of course, he is also wonderfully silly. There are dozens of songs from his productive 150 or so tunes and parodies that we could play from. Let's continue with the first verse and then chorus of Tacky, Weird Al's parody of the earwormy Happy by Pharrell. It might seem crazy wearing stripes of pride. 
After all these hit parodies over four decades, in 2014, Weird Al came out with Word Crimes, a bundle of grammar put to music, a syntactical musical lesson from Weird Al Yankovic. This is an English teacher's My name's Doug Nunn. favorite Weird Al song. Let's listen to this brilliant little musical ode to morphology, linguistics, and semantics. And as we do, let's salute the greatest musical parodist of the modern era, Weird Al Yankovic. Take us home, Weird Al. Everybody shut up. Recycling Recycled. It's time for a reset. Every day, thousands of shipping containers show up on America's shores, carrying everything from cars to electronics to Democratic candidates. Yeah, I don't know who keeps ordering these things, but there's too many. But now, there's a new import flooding the country that you won't be as excited about. A massive shipment of contaminated waste could be headed back to the United States. Malaysia says it's sending back 3,300 tons of plastic waste to countries like the United States, the UK, and Canada. Southeast Asian countries are sending back anything that can't be recycled. And countries like the US, Australia, and the UK have all been told to expect their garbage to be returned to them. That's right. Shipping containers full of plastic waste are showing up on America's doorstep. Yeah, which doesn't make anybody happy. No one's happy to see trash, like, except seagulls, they love trash. America's main export to China by volume was trash. Recycled metal, cardboard, and plastic. For decades, China's been a global dustbin taking huge quantities of our rubbish and recycling it. The relationship was symbiotic. China would ship goods to the U.S., the U.S. would use the empty ships to send China recycling. China would then use the recycling to make new goods to ship to the U.S., and the cycle continued. Yep, from China to America, and then back to China, and then to America again. Basically, it's the circle of trash. Paper, plastic into paper. A paper, plastic into paper. A paper, plastic into paper. Yeah, believe it or not, America creates so much trash that it's had to send it over to China to be recycled. 
Which isn't really surprising when you think about it. Like, nobody is better at creating unnecessary trash than America. I mean, this is the same country where you can buy orange slices in a plastic container. Yeah, as if there wasn't already a container for orange slices called an orange. <laughs> it's in the container. All of a sudden, we have a new recycling crisis. The Chinese no longer want to be the garbage dump of our planet. They no longer want to sort through all our crap. They have moved closer to middle-class status, and they've passed this job on to Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines. China wants to make their own garbage and recycle that. So we've got to return to the situation we had before China volunteered to take in our garbage. According to Sierra Club magazine's July-August 2019 issue, China's decision to stop serving as our recycle dump has forced a long-overdue day of reckoning. The whole crisis narrative has been wrong, says Steve Alexander, president of the Association of Plastic Recyclers. China didn't break recycling. It has given us the opportunity to begin investing in the infrastructure we need in order to do it better. We have built the world's most wasteful consumption economy, and we've made it a way of life. Let's let Annie Leonard of The Story of Stuff remind us of how we developed our contemporary consumer economy back in the 1950s. Here she tells us how retailing analyst Victor Lebeau put it way back after World War II. He said, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. Well, that sounds like a lot of junk. Annie Leonard then goes on to explain how Americans dispose of things. And that brings us to disposal. This is the part of the materials economy we all know the most because we have to haul the junk out to the curb ourselves. Each of us in the United States makes four and a half pounds of garbage a day. That's twice what we each made 30 years ago. All of this garbage either gets dumped in a landfill, which is just a big hole in the ground, or if you're really unlucky, first it's burned in an incinerator and then dumped in the landfill. Either way, they both pollute the air, land, water, and don't forget, change the climate. We are less than 5% of the world's economy, yet we consume more than 30% of its resources. <coughs> if every humanoid on the planet consumed at our level, we would need three planets. Last I looked, we weren't towing any extra worlds behind us in space, so we need both to consume less and to recycle in the most optimum way. And the way we've been doing this with China, where we've been throwing all our recyclables into one bin that's picked up by one truck, has not been good. It has made us lazy. I'm totally not a fat and lazy fuck. And the Chinese, although they have absorbed a lot of garbage, have also been lax. According to the Sierra Club, China has had recycling villages, shanty towns full of mom-and-pop recycling businesses that reek of caustic chemicals and haphazardly allow between 1.3 and 3.5 million metric tons of plastic to flow into Chinese rivers and then into the sea. Yes, we most definitely have to step it up on this end. Until China became our recycle dump in the mid-1990s, more far-thinking cities like Berkeley, California had systems in place that forced citizens to do more sorting work to save money. Berkeley has always had curbside bins with two compartments, one for paper, paper or plastic, 
Uh, paper, I guess. Yeah, trees, right? Who needs them? Giving a shade and life-giving oxygen. Fuck them. And one for everything else. The recycling operations that have stayed profitable are those that have catered to domestic markets wanting clean, high-quality plastics and paper. And they have insisted that consumers improve their recycling hygiene. You've got to clean it if you want to recycle it. Take soap and water, baby, for to keep it clean. And manufacturers and retailers have responsibilities here, too. The European Union has had a so-called Extended Producer Responsibility Program in place since 1994. This program encourages the use of low-impact and highly recyclable packaging by making manufacturers financially responsible for packaging the waste. According to the Sierra Club magazine, the program is funded by $3.5 billion in annual fees from manufacturers and has resulted in a 65% package recycling rate in the EU. Paper recycling in South Korea is even more impressive, around 90%. In this country, the Association of Plastic Recyclers has called on manufacturers to voluntarily ensure that new packages and containers can be recycled. Both Washington State and California are pondering bills of this nature, hmm. and consumers can do their part by insisting retailers like Costco and Walmart minimize packaging. Enough of the silly packages within a package. For the low, 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 low shut it got low price of $2.99, this prepackaged, halved, pitted, and vacuumed sealed house avocado is yours. This is the moron's road to container hell. Please listen, big box stores. Container deposit laws are also a way to get back to recycling basics. These require deposits on all single-use beverage containers, plastic, glass, or metal. The Europeans do it, we used to do it, and there is no reason we can't return to this system, which worked. Sorry to sound like an old guy talking about the olden days. I'm a grumpy old man, and I don't like things now compared to the way they used to be. But when I was a kid, it was a great way to earn extra change. Making more compostable containers is another part of a possible solution. Known as bioplastics, containers, utensils, and drinking vessels can be made from corn, potatoes. Wow, that's a lot of potatoes. Rice, tapioca, palm fiber, wood cellulose, wheat fiber, sugar, or sometimes even shrimp shells, seaweed, or algae. The number of certified compostable products has increased by 80% in the past few years, and many of these products, like bags, cups, and dishes, are increasingly available in grocery stores. Ultimately, all households will need to have a three-bin system for industrial compost, recycling, and waste. Consumers and companies are trying hard to identify more sustainable ways of doing things, and compostable products are an important part of the picture. A reborn U.S. recycling industry can happen, and it is not enough to say, oh well, we can't just throw our shit into one recycling bin and leave it at that. Consumers must demand more. An invigorated Green New Deal would include a rebuilt recycling program. We need it, and we need to start now. If there is more plastic in our oceans, if there is more refuse in our landfills, we all suffer. Reuse. Recycle. Rethink. You must admit we make a lot of garbage. This dump is filled up way above the brim. If we don't make
make an effort to recycle. The future could be looking mighty grim. Look, it's the Grim Recycler! No autographs, please. Someone's cutting down the Old Town Forest. It's not enough to sit around and grieve. If we don't protect our flora and our fauna, then we won't have the oxygen to breathe. <gasps> R-E-C-Y-C-L-E, recycle. Recycle. C-O-N-S-E-R-V-E, conserve. Conserve. Don't you P-O-L-L-U-T, pollute the river, sky, or sea. Or else we're gonna get what we deserve. What a seppy song. Wow, this is an impressive project. What is it? It's called Snap Sessions Podcast. It's got all the features you want in a podcast. Opinions, artist interviews, comedy tributes. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's a real fully functional assembly. Amazing. Who is supporting this massive undertaking? Let me tell you, an operation like this needs support to finish the job. And that comes from people like you. Me? Well, sure. Snap Sessions counts on listeners like you to help us continue our work. If you can give five bucks or more a month, we can keep building our podcast to keep you informed, entertained, and laughing. And you'll get special early access to the podcast, transcripts of full interviews, and more. Oh, sounds great. How can I help? Go to our site at thesnapsessions.com and click on the support us button at the top of the page. Or check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash snap sessions and you can chip in to keep us creating the best in podcasting developments. You can count on me. Uh, say, is that foundation built to code? Oh, oh, sorry, no sidewalk supervision, bud. And now our interview with the artist of the show, Steve Lime Jowers, landscape architect and town planner. This is Doug with Snap Sessions, and I'm here with my old friend, Steve Lime Jowers. Uh, this is the man who introduced me to Monty Python's Flying Circus. I'm not kidding. When I met Steve in 1974, I did not yet know about Monty Python and to the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. So I have a lot to be thankful to you for, Steve. So thank you for being here and welcome to Snap Sessions. Oh, hi. <laughs> well, it's good to have you. Um, I know uh, we're going to talk to you a little bit about uh, landscape architecture, town planning and the like, which you've been involved in for years. You grew up in East Anglia, down on Mersey Island near Colchester. When I met you, you uh, talked avidly about rural upbringing, English style, and you were the fourth of four kids, and you were raised on a small farm. Your parents were both teachers, but they were country people. Uh, Tell us a little bit about growing up. Okay. Uh, well, my uncle, my father's brother, was a farmer. During the war, they, uh, he was a young man, so important occupation. So the family put all their money into buying, you know, buying the farm. And then after the war, my father was in the Air Force, came back, and he, well, he was a teacher. He was very keen on growing stuff. He was a horticulturalist through and through. So he combined uh, being a teacher and a, a, mad, a mad gardener, a smallholder, uh, early eco-freak, basically. And what happened was they, one of the fields on the farm, they bought a house on. That was about two or three acres. Then they bought another piece of land, another two acres behind. And uh, it got to be quite a big operation for as a small holding. It was very, very intensive. So we grew fruit and kept uh, chickens and geese and ducks and that kind of stuff. Um, had a big orchard, a lot of apples and pears and all sorts of different varieties. But then his main thing was growing seeds, flower seeds, for um, 
Sutton's, which is like Burpees in America. It's um, you know a big big seat retailer, and to do that, you've got to go and know how, exactly how to grow stuff really well. You've got to pot, sow the seed. They come around each year and select the best of the season seeds. They mark them as they call them specials. Anything that's bad, they call rogues, and they rip them out of the ground after you've grown them all. <coughs> throw them over the hedge. Uh, the specials, then you sow the seed, prick them out, grow them on, water them, you know, plant them, water them, tend them, net them if they got the birds go for them, etc. So it's intensive stuff. So I grew up knowing quite a lot, or being taught a lot about plants, but all the profits my father made, he spent on grow, on buying exotic plants. Where we were in uh, Broadway was on the east coast of England, and the climate is quite temperate, so it's... Um, not quite subtropical, but you can grow kind of some Mediterranean things. You can grow things that will go down to about minus five centigrade. So that's mm-hmm. probably about minus twenty Fahrenheit, yeah. which is unusual in England because it gets cold winds and continental climate. All four of you are gardeners. All four of the kids, right? Didn't Talk have to- any choice. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> that's part of what I I bring up because your dad in a this was kind of unusual for the time right after the war. He studied ecology, as I recall. That was one of his subjects. He became a teacher of English, I think, in a secondary English school. History. English and yeah. history, yeah. And um, he was always a fun guy to talk with. But he also, as I recall, he studied environment, ecology or environmentalism. Tell us a little bit about the kind of stuff he passed on to you that way. Uh, it was just anything about the natural world. So one of his big things was... Okay, you want to grow this plant. Where does it come from? What's the conditions there? What's the ecology of that place? Why is the flower shape like that? What pollinates it? What sort of aspect does it like? Does it like drying out, you know, in the summer? Is it a kind of Mediterranean plant? Does it like constant cool? So, for instance, one stage he was growing um, Japanese lilies. You see the, these lilies that you see everywhere now. They were quite unusual then. And uh, they grow in cracks in volcanic rock. So they like to be in a mixture of half grit or gravel and half acid uh, leaf mould. So you make a mixture up like that, and you know what you're doing, off you go. Right? If you put it in a, an ordinary kind of soil compost, it wouldn't grow. He'd be able to sit there working away, and he'd be able to tell every bird that would fly by or sit in a tree. He'd just know exactly what's going on. And he'd look at insects and see what's happening. I remember one occasion when... Um, my uncle was a, a barley baron, they called them. They're big farmers. They were up with the new technology and one of the first in the area with a combine harvester and all that kind of stuff. And one, one day he was showing off to his mates at the golf club and he had a crop duster came in to spray the wheat. For, had a, um, an aphis in it. And my father said, look, these died a week ago. There's no point doing it. Know, but he was drenching the environment with chemicals totally unnecessarily. We also kept bees. And uh, he got up to one stage with 27 hives of bees. And again, they'd be uh, they'd like feeding on the beans in the fields, forage beans. But then again, the, these farmers would spray these beans just when they're in flower and kill all the bees off. So he's like silent spring and all that kind of stuff. He was well into all that. It was an educator too. Um, I know that he grew orchids. You had a, a greenhouse there that where he had orchids in it, which was kind of unusual for that part of the country, yeah. isn't it? Yep. Yeah. yeah. He also had a, a knack for uh, pulling people in. I remember uh, one time when I had moved to Mendocino Coast, 
your dad said to me one day, I understand you guys have madrone trees there. And uh, madrone is sort of an offshoot of the Manzanita family. It has this beautiful dark red bark, kind of wine-colored bark. Arbutus. Arbutus menziesii. There you go. <laughs> well, your dad said, could you get me some seeds? That, that meant that I would have to wait till the fall, get some, the berries start to dry up. And so I gathered berries and then I put them in a envelope. And at the time I was worried, you know, plant life coming out of Mendocino, heading to Europe, that could be a marijuana or something. So I was worried about your dad getting this pile of stuff. But the next time I visited, your dad had managed to plant the uh, madrone seeds and he actually was growing three or four plants. That's right. um, Yeah. I I just was fascinated with this. I mean, what a guy. Your your mom was equally a character, Bridget. She was a a fascinating person that way, too. Uh, One question regarding this. So here you are, you've grown up on this mini farm and with a dad and mom who are interested in gardening. Do you think that pushed you in the direction of maybe wanting to be a landscape architect? Yeah, well, it obviously was helped. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I always think kids, you know, teenage kids have a real problem. They're not old enough to experience the world, so they don't know what they need, what they want to do. You know, I knew, I knew definitely what I didn't want to do was be a teacher. I haven't heard of, you know, the stories of the classrooms and the snotty-nosed kids and definitely didn't want to do that. But I hadn't got a clue. I was at um, school choosing, you know, going to college, so I actually managed to wangle a place in London, at University College London, to do international relations, which is, and looking back on it, was a bit weird. I had some fantasy about learning Spanish and going to South America and being a journalist. Anyway, it's an unconditional place, so uh, that made me slack right off. I got better results than I expected at my uh, A-levels, which we have to get. Um, so I decided to have a year off, which is, in those days was quite unusual, have a, uh, a year out. Um, but I was quite young for my year. So... I worked for a year on building sites and gardening and doing various things and then um, reapplied. So I thought, well, I don't really know what I want to do. So I'll go and choose a college where they give the option of being able to fairly easy to change subjects, disciplines. So that's why I went off to University of Sussex in Brighton uh, to do philosophy, which was another crazy idea. But, you know, I was, I was thinking it was, it was the late 60s, early 70s, a lot of politics going on, a lot of interesting things in the world. Um, what's the background to all these? It was all you know, good stuff, but um, eminently I'm impractical, and I'm more of a practical person. So I decided after a couple of terms, I didn't really like that, and decided to change. The only thing I could change to was doing geography, which is fine. It's not really a big subject in the States, geography. I know you were there at Sussex, and you ended up then um, coming over to UC Berkeley, University of California at Berkeley, where I was, and I had just come back from doing a, a year abroad as uh, in Ireland, in du- Trinity College, Dublin. And uh, one of the things they had us do was uh, liaise with uh, new British and Irish students. And I remember I went over one night in the fall of 74. I met you at a friend's house. She had been at Sussex, where you had been. And uh, we hit it off immediately and had a lot of laughs. That year, I introduced you to all my friends and we had an excellent year, as I recall. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, brilliant time. Brilliant you, taught time me, yeah. you taught me how to brew beer. I took you all sorts of places in California where my friends were, and it was really great. Yeah. And oh, I had a great time, yeah. It was terrific. One of the things that I thought was interesting was that 
you used to talk to me about all sorts of intellectual ideas. And one of them was, as I recall, you took a class in either architectural design or landscape architecture, and you started doing drawings. I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack a bit here. So uh, I did a first year at Sussex, and then my brother was in uh, doing a, a PhD in, at Princeton. That summer, managed to wangle onto a, a scheme, which was um, where you had English students could go over and work in American camps, you know, uh, summer camps. There's a thing called BUNAC, British University's North America Club. It was dirt cheap. You get a flight and a work permit for nothing, mm -hmm. like 40, $50. Me and a friend jumped on a plane and went over there, and, but we weren't intending to work on the camps. We managed to find some jobs and earn some money, and then we bought a car with my brother and his girlfriend and drove around the States that summer. So we went right across. At the time, they just, it was the oil price crisis, so they... Uh, there's a speed limit put on, so we decided to go across Canada because it was a bit quicker. It was a hell of a long way. And we drove all the way around and went to, went to San Francisco and Berkeley and stuff, and Grand Canyon, and you know, did, did 9,000 miles or whatever. So it got a taste for us, the States. And then this scholarship came up as a transfer thing. So I applied for it, didn't expect to get it, and got it. Okay, where would it go? Yeah, what, what subject? Oh, geography. There's only, there's only one place that did geography, and that was um, UC Berkeley. At the time where Sussex was like, Three and a half thousand students. Berkeley was like thirty-five thousand students. The geography department had forty people in it at Berkeley. It was like a top corner of the Earth Sciences Building. So I don't know, what's all this about then? <laughs> the thing was, the, the exchange was uh, based on the fact that um, American students coming over would pay fees, and in exchange, a few English students could go back over there and get a grant to, to support them, but didn't have to actually do any particular subject. So it didn't really matter that I wasn't doing geography. So I went along there. I thought, well, geography's okay. I did one or two. It was an interesting department. But there was this department of landscape architecture with 400 students in it. I'd never heard of it before. So I took an introductory course, a guy called Michael Laurie, and he was a good, really good teacher. So that was the first term. And then uh, talked to the guy, and he said, well, if you want to do landscape architecture, I advise you do this, that, and the other. So I did architectural drawing. Uh, did a course on ecology. Of course, on botany, you know, it was all 101 stuff, but it was, you know, to me, because I always came from an art side, it was all interesting stuff. Yeah. And it was very well taught. I was, I, must, I was very impressed with it, how they could deal with so many students and teach it really well. So that's how I picked up all these things. And what appealed to me about landscape architecture is you've got to know about a lot of different things. Not huge depth, but, you know, you've got to know, I don't know, history, planning, geology, botany, you know, horticulture, architecture, engineering. All those kind of things, which are just fascinating. I've got a ragbag mind. I like picking stuff up. So it just appealed. And the guy said, well, if you do this, when you go back, you, you know, you could probably do a postgraduate course in England. And that's what I did. And then you ended up, when you went back, you ended up going up. Manchester University had a graduate course in landscape architecture. That's right, yeah. And yeah. you and Jill at the time, you and Jill headed up there. And yeah. what was the course like? And did you feel that you were, now I've got something I want to do? Or were you still unsure? Yeah. Tell us yeah, a little bit so. about that. Okay, so um, I got to know Jill while I was at Sussex. And then uh, we moved up there. And it's a postgraduate two-year course but it leads to sort of halfway through a professional qualification. So um, that's, that was a good help. Okay, it was pretty busy when doing my normal degree, but this was, um, this was real nine in the morning stuff. And you went on, because it was studio work, and all architects do it, and, you know, I'm sure medics and lots of other professions. But, you know, you, you, we were working there till sort of 
seven, eight, nine o'clock in the evening. You've got a presentation to do. You know, you have to work your socks off. And then uh, what they have is you put your work up on the wall and you have criticisms. Okay, a crit? You ever come across this? Yeah. So, you, you know, you put your stuff up and then people, the professors and lecturers take the piss out of it. And, you know, to tell you what you've done wrong. And it soon toughens you up. And you've got to justify why you're doing things in certain ways. Plus, you've got to develop the skills of drawing and all the rest of it. So it was all hand-drawn in those days. But that was uh, you learned a lot. So you did different projects that were set for you at different um, scales. So you did a large-scale landscape planning, which is you know when you're looking at a region, a big, as a big, big area. And then you do other ones, um, more detailed designs of a... You have to come up with some uh, use of a bit of land. I mean, I did one... The one I did on... I mean, part of this was sort of post-industrial wasteland. What do you do with it? I had this site where it was a, a river valley that had been filled up with the waste from a power station, right? So it was, part, it was next to a coal mine. Some of the coal spoil was on fire. That, was, that had an acidity of like two, two or three, pH two or three. Yeah. The waste, the fly ash from the power station, had an acidity of about pH 10. And the, the, the whole lot had been dug out, the, the fly ash, to build motorways. So they were left with this desolate valley with nothing in it particularly, um, and pig shit going down the, down the stream. So that's, that's the sort of thing you have to deal with. <laughs> the real-world problem, you know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and that's that's the sort of that's what that kind of thing appealed to me because you've got to be imaginative about it. Yeah, I you know that gets you in a lot of ways. That gets us into the next part because soon thereafter you got a job in Milton Keynes, which is yeah. one of the relatively new post-war new towns. Now this would be what late seventies, late seventies, correct? Yeah, seventy-eight. You and Jill at the time, you relocated to Milton Keynes. Tell us a little bit yeah. about the background of Milton Keynes, maybe you know how you got started there, and maybe a little bit about the new town concept. Uh, well, I was at um, Manchester, and then we had uh, external examiners. So you know they come in and uh, mark your work, and one of the guys was um, chief landscape architect in Milton Keynes. And basically, he'd just been reorganising the uh, situation there, and I said, do you want a job? So... Bingo. So I must have impressed him. So that was good. Great. Um, so I thought, well, that saved me looking for one. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so I, I, I knew a bit about Milton Keynes. So I thought, well, wait, you know, we'll go. The initial impression of Milton Keynes was like the Bay Area was in the uh, in the seventies. When I went when I went to Berkeley, it was very rapid transit just been right, opened. Right. Yes. Okay. So everything mm-hmm. was really shining and new, and as you did registration on a computer. You bought tickets on the on BART without a magnetic strip. It was all, you know, nowadays it sounds like ancient history, but in those days it was brand new and everything looked new. And Milton Keynes being in a new town was being built. It was That was a good place to be as well. A lot of interesting people working there in all sorts of disciplines that were chosen because they were young and go-ahead and bright. And uh, it was great fun. Uh, so I thought, well, this is this is good. So we ended up there. They provide us with a house to start with, so you didn't have to look for anywhere to live. We were rattling around in this three-story house with no furniture. And then, <laughs> I bought, <laughs> then I bought a little cottage and renovated that and moved in there. And I'd uh, lived there eight years. Yeah, it was a good, good place. 
Yeah. Milton, Milton Keynes was a new town. Um, give us some background about, you know, in Britain, new towns, because, you know, Britain has this history of massive industrialization in the 19th century, a lot of urban blight, and then people trying to find new places to live. So give us a little background yeah. about that. Some similar parallels happen in the States as well. But uh, as you say, the, the, the slums were a problem. So there were... Um, People realised that living conditions in, in, in the cities were, were terrible. One of the things that prompted um, major reforms were cholera outbreaks when they realised it was to do with sanitation. So sewers, paving, clearing rubbish, better buildings, running water, proper water closets and everybody have access to toilets. That kind of, it all, you know, it's all part of what we take for granted, but it, it had to be kind of uh, almost invented, it adopted as a policy. But the, the, the cities were very crowded because in those days people had to walk to work. So they were very dense and overcrowded. Rural areas were pretty poor in those days. Often the conditions were, they were like thatched cottages with no maintenance on them. They were full of vermin. The wages were absolutely awful. To, after about 1870, the um, st- stuff being imported from the States and around the British Empire knocked the socks off the um, uh, British market. So... A lot of places were just tumbling down. So it was rural poverty, urban poverty, and things were in a bad way. So uh, there's a guy called Ebenezer Howard. He was he was the originator of the idea of a garden city. So he said, in, in the countryside, you've got fresh air and you know healthy environment, but no work. In the cities, you've got lots of work, but horrible environment. Well, why not invent something that um, combines the two? And that's where it was born. So he wrote a book called The Garden Cities, A Peaceful Path to Real Reform in 1899. And that kicked things off big time. That's where it originated. Two towns were built after the First World War. One was Letchworth, which was the first one. Another one was Welling Garden City. And the idea was that people would buy agricultural, rural land, which was cheap, put the infrastructure in, sell off plots, and then using the money that was generated, then gradually put that in as, as a sinking fund that would help pay for the initial investment. And then after that, any surplus would accrue would be for the benefit of the town. And, th- and that's, that was the theory. And it worked. And, yeah, of course, you had the Great Depression. You had, you know, the slump, then the war, the Second World War brewing up. Then after the Second World War, these ex- were taken as examples by the uh, British government and said, well, this is, could be a way of actually dealing with bomb-damaged cities and slum clearance. So... They came up with this policies for new towns, and they went through three generations. There were immediate post-war ones, and then there was a second generation. Then Milton Keynes was the last and final one, and it was the biggest as well. And it was located halfway between London and Birmingham, near the main railway line, the, the motorway. By that time, ideas had changed, and it was planned on the basis of increasing car use, looking at America as an example how to make a city that you could drive around and through. So unlike most British towns, it was actually built on a grid system, not a radial system. You also talked a little bit, you have given me a little education with a PowerPoint about background of urban blight and landscape architecture and stuff. You also talked about Robert Owen, and this goes a little bit back further into the 19th century, about utopian towns, which was pretty interesting. I wonder if you could just give uh, our listeners a little bit of a background on Robert Owen and some of the utopian towns. Okay. A lot of the early Industrial Revolution, what they were doing wasn't actually in existing towns. What they needed was usually to start with water power, or they needed coal for the steam engines to run them. 
in the textile industry need an awful lot of water for, for dealing with the, the cloth that they produce, for washing it and dyeing it and cleaning it. So quite a lot of these industrialists built new mills and factories in fairly remote locations. So then they had to build housing for the workers. So most of them are pretty poor quality. It's like the Dickensian side of things. But some people realise that actually if we've got a, 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 a workforce that's looked after and it's healthy and there's some childcare and uh, people don't get ill, we can get more work out of them. Uh, but also, so it makes sense from a financial point of view. But also, they had a kind of um, a semi-religious, charitable view that, well, you know, we're providing this environment. Let's make people um, have opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have in the, in the existing cities. So Robert Owen was one of the earliest utopians, uh, New Lanark Mills in Scotland, and um, they had healthcare provided pensions when people were old or sick pay if they got ill. And he had some, you know, fairly radical ideas at the time. That was that was at the end of the 18th century, so it was around the time of the um, French Revolution. And there were some quite big ideas going around at the time. They tend to be the one-offs, though. Most of the industrialists just got away with murder. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I think Owen also um, had some influence in the uh, United States in that early part of the 19th I think in the Ohio uh, area. That's right, yeah, the there New was Harmony. New Harmony, that's it, yeah. yeah. Now, I can't help but want to investigate this because this is pretty interesting stuff. You talk about industrialization and urban blight here and all the correctives, and you had given us a run-through of the new towns. You also pointed out to me a lot of the stuff that happened in Victorian times, and uh, I can't help but to ask about the, the great stink of 1858. And then later on, there was some parliamentary responses and public health acts and so forth. Just give us a little bit of background about the Great Stink. Well, in London, the thing <laughs> is that um, people had they'd invented the water closet, the flushing toilet. Right. Okay, right. so everybody's had to have one of these things. You know, a great idea, you know, rather than a chamber pot where they chucked it out the window. So the trouble was there was nothing to connect them into, so they just went into the nearest river. So there were two or three tributaries of the River Thames, and then the Thames itself just filled up with sewage and there was a hot summer and parliament had to close because the stink was so bad i think it was the great stench it was called <laughs> in fact the new houses the house of parliament that are there now yeah. have got internal ventilation chimneys in them to get around that problem but it didn't happen after they'd built it but uh, it was just stank and one area the river fleet which is where fleet street where the uh, british press uh, used to be based, yeah. kind of got put underground. They built over it, uh, and that exploded in one place. It was just, it was just disastrous. The River Thames there in London is tidal, so only about ten percent of it gets washed out each tide. So it just keeps building up and building up. And you, you can imagine hot weather, and and they got yeah. you see why well, they got cholera. But the, oh, the yeah. great thing about it was um, something had to be done. The Victorians always had you know, something's got to be done. So they got the guy called Sir, Sir Joseph Bazalgette. Uh-huh. Famous engineer, and he came up with a, um, a scheme for putting a trunk sewer the length of the Thames right down from uh, well above Westminster all the way down right out to the east end of London and on, on both sides of the river. But that's what the embankment in London was built for ah. that's basically sewers underneath. And it was the first time that Portland cement was used in a big way, it was an experimental thing. And it's got a kind of a it's got a fall on it of like one in a thousand. 
very gentle fall. It's huge. It's the size of a double-decker bus mm-hmm. inside it, or bigger. And uh, it goes out to a big pumping station that was well, two of them, one on each side of the river, where the, the, it's it's then pumped up and, and out and into the Thames further down, which is still working. And they're huge steam engines. A temple of hygiene, they're called. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, I, I would think you would need that to alleviate a great stink. So uh... Yeah. Well, luckily, luckily, it was built big enough to allow for London to expand. And it's still being used. They're only just starting or in the middle of building a new they call it the Thames Tideway, which is actually running under the Thames, being bored as a giant tunnel, doing the same thing, but just to allow for the extra capacity. Well, that was a, an excursion well worth following. Thank you very much, Lyme, <laughs> on that one. That's great. You know, look it up on Wikipedia or something. You know? I'm going to now. I will bet that there's not a podcast around that has anything about the great stink of 1858. So. <laughs> You're breaking new ground here. Other than breaking wind. (laughs) (laughs) So um, getting back to the uh, trajectory of uh, your time in Milton Keynes, I visited you a number of times there and actually was living in Britain from for much of the middle, late 80s. And I got to see a lot of the stuff that you were working on. You know, it was a new town and you were designing and planting all kinds of gardens and a lot of doing a lot of landscaping. I read some of the blurbs that uh, were in your um, PowerPoint. It was interesting to me to see that, you know, the kind of work you did. Let's say you were given a job to landscape uh, a roadway or the entrance to a neighborhood. What were the kind of jobs that you were given in in those times? All sorts. Anything, Anything and everything. Okay, one of the things we were working on was quite a lot of the area of the city was you couldn't build on it. It was, it's either flooded or it was um, ancient monuments or protected areas. or there, there was a lot of land that was available. And what do you do with it? How do you look after it? So one of the big things like on a strategic level was we can't mow all this because it just costs too much money. So what do we do with it? You can't let it go to rack and ruin. You're not allowed to plant its forest because you need the rivers to flow and all the rest of it. So we had to come up with a whole lot of different ideas of, of what we could do to um, allow it to be of benefit to the public, the people living there, but not cost too much. So we came up with this this thing, which was, um, and it was a bit of, in the, the parks around Boston are called a string of beads, I think, a necklace of parks. So we are kind of working on that idea. So the idea was having a string, which was for the footpaths and, and routes through this space, which you, if, if you want to get access to it, you had to provide. And then the beads would be features along it. There could be a play area, it could be an ancient monument, it could be, um, we've got a, a peace pagoda there, you know, a church designed by Sir Robert Hooke, you know, historical things and sculpture, sculpture parks, etc. And then the rest of it's called the setting. It's just the background. And what do you do with that? So what we then looked at was, okay... We tried sheep for a while, and it's been some areas have been fenced off for sheep, and they could still be used there. The management of the place doesn't do that so much now, but it could be done. It worked, worked well for a while. Uh, but a lot of horses, a lot of people ride horses. If we didn't provide places for horse riding, all the surrounding areas would get turned into pony paddocks, and usually they're pretty slummy pony people. You know, we, call, we call it horsey culture. And it's, you know, <laughs> it's just, you know, abandoned horse trailers and 
old jumps and just a mess. So we said, okay, well, we'll provide these. And then to do that, if you're going to have horses in the middle of the city, you've got to actually put horse trails through, which cost a, for- cost a fortune. A lot of people objected to it, you know, thinking it was wasting money on the super rich. But actually, a lot of ordinary people use it. And horses are fairly vandal-proof. Another thing, we, we play cricket in England, not baseball. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you, need, you need willows for growing the, um, the wood for the bats. So cricket bat willows. Are, are, they're like a crop. They grow for 15 years, and then you can make you know, a whole load of... I think you make 24 cricket bats out of the average tree. Okay, so you're planting those. Um, reed beds, and there's some you know, wildlife areas that kind of look after themselves. So you end up with a mosaic of different land uses. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of strategic thinking. And then you go down to the next level, which is looking at a neighbourhood area. Because of the grids, they're like um, about uh, well, a kilometre, two-thirds of a mile square grids where the housing environments are in, the neighbourhoods with the roads going in between them. So each one of those, some were industrial employment, some warehousing, but mostly housing. Each had its own kind of um, style and quality and character. But each of them would have a local park, have a series of play areas, we would have a local shopping centre. The, the, people didn't want to live near a main road, so all the roadside around the grids will be heavily landscaped with, with earth banks generated from where the building works. All planted up. So, the, and then you've got play areas, you've got all allotments, um, you name it, school grounds, lots of schools. There's like an awful lot of variety to go in there. One of the reasons Milton Keynes was chosen, the, the site was chosen, because it's the soil is appalling. It's a, it's a brick clay, and it's kind of blue. It's horrible stuff to deal with. So, we had to develop a load of techniques for, for managing to make it suitable to grow decent planting on. Um, which we, we did. When you strip off a site, it's got an existing topsoil there, and the main, the thing, the important thing is to keep as much of that as you can. Otherwise, the the builder just trash it. So let's say a site needs only half the soil put back on it that's taken off because of the buildings and the roads and the car parks and all the rest of it. That half surplus you can use for all the planting areas and the landscape areas, and that really worked well. Another thing we did was. The traditional way of planting is you plant little, uh, we call them whips, little little trees about a, you know, a foot high, two foot high, and you put them quite wide spacing, and hopefully they'll turn into a forest. That's really slow. We planted them at um, a yard apart, okay, uh, and kept the, the ground clean underneath. Herbicides had just come in, into the fashion then, or been developed, which a lot of people don't like. But for the first year or so, if you can keep the competition down by cleaning the weeds off and you've got good topsoil in and you plant them dense, the plants just jump out of the ground. They've got to, they reach the light, they've got to get, they go up and straight and they're off. And then they get a canopy, then you don't need any more herbicides, then they're growing. You have to use native species because they're the only ones that will grow properly and, and they're adapted to it. So the, for wildlife, it's really, really good, really successful. So that's the, that um, kind of neighbourhood area. And then you've got to go and design all the little bits and pieces, all the, um, the play areas and the, the parks and the, all sorts of things. So any, anything outside. There's lots of lakes as well, to flood alleviation lakes. So designing those. The engineers can work out, you know, they'll, they'll give you a, you know, a rectangular hole, but that's not really what people want to see. So <laughs> it's, it's having to work with their uh, parameters and uh, 
requirements to make something that's attractive. That's pretty. We had some weird, we had some weird and wonderful things. So um, it was a kind of marketing thing because it was going to be a big new town. They decided to call it the city. So it's called the city of Milkings, but it's not actually legally a city. The kind of weird thing in Britain where the Queen can designate a city. So they called it the city of trees. Right. In the early days, the idea was that no building was going to be higher than the tallest tree. <coughs> Since gone out the window, but I'll just come on to that. So we, um, my boss, had the idea of, well, if it's a city of trees. Why don't why don't we have a tree cathedral? So designs were worked up based on Norwich Cathedral, mm-hmm. and we've now got a tree cathedral. So the, the columns are you know trunks of trees. It's got cloisters with different sorts of trees, and it's a very popular place now. And it's got a like a you know people have weddings in there and you know um, festivals and yeah dance events and it's re- it's really worth seeing. You know, I have to vi- next time I visit, we'll have to go there because I wasn't aware of that. That sounds really yeah. it sounds really worth seeing there. I know there's also a uh, one other question about Milton Keynes I wanted to ask was you mentioned before and I know this was true after the war after World War II there was a, a strong labor influence to the uh, and social democracy type influence to new towns and then with the election of Maggie Thatcher in 1979 you guys had to scramble there was a lot of pushing in privatization directions maybe you could give us a little of that changeover what happened yeah um the, the, the new towns post-war new towns movement was basically the social democracy so the population had been through the first world war after the first world war they promised homes fit for heroes it didn't happen right? it was a big slump in the early 20s then it started roaring okay for a few years then bang in the depression people were just nailed so they were living in slums having you know no money you know, you know all this you know george orwell and all the you know, the uh, Jode family and all the rest of it. You know, people people had it hard. And they got the, and they got the Second World War, okay. They realised, they posted all, all amongst, with, with different people. I think the mixing up of people realising they're all in the same boat, they've all had a pretty bad time. Said, no, we don't want this anymore. Come on, come on. If you want us to fight for you, you know, because it's mainly the, uh, the industrialists and the, uh, the rich guys, you know, uh, <laughs> they say, well, we want something in return. Oh, okay, hence social democracy. So, okay, Labour won a landslide. So this always makes me laugh that, you know, Churchill was the great wartime leader. Yeah, but he was crap in peacetime. A bit like Boris Johnson. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> so the idea was we had the welfare state, and it was fundamentally changed things. So a national health service, education service was vastly improved. All sorts of things came in. And I was the, I've been the benefit of that. Our generation has been absolutely really lucky. And then that kind of post-war consensus started to get eroded. It was, you know, Milton Friedman and the Chicago School and Reaganomics and all that kind of stuff. So I was there. I, I started working in 1978. 79, the election, bang, Thatcher came in. <laughs> like a screeching halt and U-turn. <laughs> so, Milton Keynes had been going for about, building for about eight years, seven or eight years by then. And it was basically public housing schemes with a few private housing, but it's mainly... The idea was, the, the idea of a new town was that you had a 20-year lifespan. So you had a, a graph, if you, you imagine a graph, on the uh, left axis, you had investment, and so it was, you had a massive amount of investment to start with that tapered off over 20 years. So you had to put your sewers in, sewage works, your roads, your electricity, you know, substations, and power grids, and blah, 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 blah. 
Okay. That, and then you put you started building mass housing, which was luckily we were just after the tower block uh, fashion, so we called them tower blocks on the sides. Okay. <laughs> um, dense housing, and then the idea was that gradually private investment would come in and from nothing, and then crisscross over in about ten years, and then go on, and then that would be Milton Keynes. You know, it would go on for the future. And luckily, I was just there at that crossover point, just before it. Maggie came in, and it just took off. But what happened was the all the kind of modern architectural designs and flat roofs and uh, various gimmicky things and different kinds of building materials. Um, there's a famous one where um, one of the, one of the leading architects it leaked and it was badly insulated. You know, so it was a uh, Norman Foster, yeah, Bean Hill. It was a mess. Uh, they had to sort of reclad it and put roofs on, and you know, disastrous. Anyway, Milton Keynes, they were kind of okay. Thatcher's coming now. She could have just cancelled it, just chopped, just stopped new towns on its tracks, uh, or, and then just sold it off to the to private developers. But they managed to hang on in there. And what they realised was it's the only one of the few things that they act had actually direct control on through the treasury. They could do things with. And they thought, oh, this is, this is great, because not only can we show what we want to do, we can actually make money out of it. So what it went to was traditional then, what we call, you know, we call them noddy houses. So in the separate um, detached houses with a pitched roof made out of brick, with a car parking space and a garage and a private rear garden, and you have endless ones. So it's like typical suburbia. Mm-hmm. And that's what people wanted, and that's supposedly, and that's what got built dreadfully boring stuff we managed to carry on because of this they came and opened the shopping building which was a new big shopping mall it was the biggest in europe at the time and uh, apparently uh, maggie thatcher's husband said oh look what private enterprise can do and it had all been done through <laughs> you know, a public body a, what we call a quango a quasi non-governmental organization that had a right. had a mission to do these things and did it really well so it just made us laugh that did yeah so so much of it was so appalling. From the landscape point of view, we just try to hide most of it behind trees. And it's yeah. working pretty well. Yeah. So you now got a city in a forest. There you go. Those long-term visions have worked. It's a beautiful town, actually. Now there's a lot of good stuff. You talked uh, to me in terms of the kind of stuff that influenced you. One more uh, sort of landscape architecture question here. You mentioned environmental designers like Ian McHarg and uh, Design with Nature. It talks yeah. about ecological planning, designing with local ecology in mind and stuff. I wondered if you could just give us a little background about McHarg and some of the newer thinking in environmental design. Well, this is pretty old hat now, but when it was written in the, in the early 70s, it, was, um, it kind of coalesced and condensed a lot of information as to how you actually could go about doing it. So it's, most professions were, tend to be uh, living in silos. So if you're an engineer, you, you deal with the roads or the sewage works or whatever, and the architect wants to make it look flash and have his you know, building on the cover of some fancy made coffee table magazine or whatever. So mm-hmm. you, you need a multidisciplinary approach, which is what appealed to me about landscape architecture anyway. And then you've got to go through and work out how you can work out, work the constraints of the sites and the advantages of it and, the, and, the, and the disadvantages. So, you know, the, the benefits... Uh, and the, the things that don't work so well. So Ian McCarg invented a, a system called sieve mapping. So you map down all the various aspects. 
It could be you know, the soils, the geology, the water flows, the historic bits, the important ecological bits, the you name it, the noise, um, pollution sources, whatever. And it's all mapped on the on the same base in different layers. And you can, if you do it on a, a tracing paper or a, you know, you can see through it. What it builds up is a, a complex map, which is called a sieve map, where you can look through and you say, okay, we can't deal deal with that area because that's got so many constraints, but we can work in here. And what would be the advantage of doing this, that, and the other? So that's led on to a whole branch of landscape planning. So now what we deal with is, and I do quite a lot of this sort of work, is landscape character assessment. Over the, over the whole of Britain, there's a whole load of studies been done of what are the distinctive aspects of different parts of the country. And, you, you know, you've got, like the, let's say the chalk downlands around Brighton are very different from the Pennines up in the north of England or the Fenlands in the east of England or the Cotswolds or whatever. So it's all been divided up into about 150 different character areas. And then each county, local areas, breaks that down even further. So you've got more localised character areas. And this has quite a big influence on planning policy. So now what you do a lot of work on is somebody proposes a new development, what's going to be the impact on the, on the land, actual landscape and on the character of that area? They're called landscape and visual impact assessments. So what you have, basically have to do is you have to go and assess what the, what, what's on the site in terms of the landscape. So it's usually doing a tree survey, ecological survey, and then you've got to go around and look from a distance at what the site looks like now and what the proposed development is and what the impact is. That could be using photo montages, modelling of the the new development, where you can see it from, what you can't see, suggestions on how to make minimise the impact of it. So that's a, a lot of my work these days is doing that. It's quite, it's quite surprising that you've got an area which is, a, let's say, a, a beautiful part of England, in the Cotswolds, and somebody says, oh, I want to build a house. Oh, you can't build it there, you'll see it for miles. When you actually do the work, and it's, it's a very carefully worked out system that you have to go through a series of steps, you realise you can only see it from one or two places, and then if you put some, some woodland in or put a mound of earth in or reduce the height of the thing or you know, use different coloured materials on it, you won't see it. Yeah. So it's, it's quite fascinating, that side. So there's a variety of things that go into it, including um, you had always been environmentally conscious in the talks that we've had over time, and I know in your family you were, and you know now you've made the transition from working for the city, you've been in private practice, I guess is the word. You've had a private landscaper yeah. for a while. Any notes on the transition or do you like this freedom, I suppose? I was, I, was, I was very lucky, I think, because working for Milton Keynes, I had a wide range of work and it was really, really efficiently and quickly done. Like they, um, The whole point of it there was uh, they had a mission to build a city in 20 years uh, in a city of 250,000 people. So that sounds quite slow these days by Chinese standards. But <laughs> So they'd have you, you put forward a proposal on a let's say on a on a, on a Friday, but there's a deadline for getting in. They'd have a they'd have a meeting, a board meeting on the Wednesday, and if it was approved, the following Monday you start building it. It's like bing bang bang, just really efficient. Now some schemes take five, ten years to get through the planning process. It's really really slow, and it just frustrates the hell out of everybody. But uh, so that that doing things on different scales and very quickly. And lots of them. And I was there for, well, 10 years for the Development Corporation, as it was called. Towards the end of that, um, well, the Tory government decided to chop, chop it. It said it was going to end in 1992, which it did. 
Um, but there's a load of work on there. So they said, if we set you up as a private company, then we'll guarantee the work until 1992. And then it's up to you after that. So 1988, we went in, we, we formed a, a private company. And for those four years, we did, we did a load of work. Then there was a big recession in the early 90s. So getting that private work was quite difficult. But we went to lose some staff. But we gradually did and picked it up, carried on. And then my boss retired in the, the early 2000s, and I took the firm over. So he was um, old school, hand-drawn, needed a secretary, you know, couldn't type, that kind of thing. So <laughs> I, I decided then, it was also the stage where computers started becoming affordable. A few big architectural practices had them, but, you know, we got to the level of PC. So I junked all the everything, put, gave everybody PCs, and we got rid of secretaries and you know, more modern working systems. That was fine until the recession in the 2000 and, uh, December 2007. All during that summer, suddenly, all the, the work just dried up. There's no, no work coming in. What's going on? Nobody was talking about it. They called it the recession of 2008, but it actually was happening six months before. So I had to wind the firm up, and that uh, was it, liquidate it. Wow. So I thought, okay, what do I do? So I'm on my own now. But by that time, I'd learned enough and had the confidence enough to be able to fly on my own. And I actually enjoyed it more. I had to go back and relearn uh, kind of computer drawing and stuff because I had technicians and stuff doing that. Yeah, sure, yeah. yeah. So it's like learning Japanese, you know. So yeah. you pick it up. Yeah. It's quick when you're older. And I'm yeah. not all that good at it still, but I'm good enough. I still, I still like hand drawing sketches and things. They're where the ideas come from. And the rest yeah. of it is kind of knocking out the accuracy. And then, Pete, luckily, people kept me going with a few jobs. I picked more stuff up. Things gradually picked up, and I've been really busy ever since. So you see yourself working for a while longer then as a private landscape architect? Yeah, but I'm picking and choosing a bit and not doing, you know, not having to do it, let's say. That's good. I'm drawing a, I'm drawing a pension now, so I you know, can't. I've got to let the youngsters have a chance. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Now, yeah. yeah. I'm working with a couple of ladies who are um, – in their forties, and they just got their kids to school, and they, they wanted to pick up again as a professional. They haven't got much confidence, or they haven't had. But I've been working with them and let them do the work, and gradually hoping to hand over most of my clients to them. So uh, that seems to be working well. I know you're also an avid uh, tiff fielder. I know that you always have struck me as kind of a village guy, and I think you know when I first met you, we went to Mersey, uh, where you were raised. Mersey's actually a small town in a lot of ways, but I, I think in American yeah. standards. But it's also a large village. At Tiffield, where you live now, is definitely a village. When I was there at your daughter's wedding, Dominique, 10 years ago or so now, something yeah, like that? Yeah, 2009, yeah. Uh, we were there, and um, there's you're, all, you're completely connected in this little village, and it's a beautiful little place. You've got a nice house, got a great garden, but you're also involved with a variety of uh, local activities that are in TIFF field. And I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about some of the groups you belong to. You mentioned uh, F-A-R-T-S. I think it's called FARTS. <laughs> yeah. If you could tell us a little bit about some of your TIFF okay. field organizations, which might be centering on the pub. Yeah, well, <clears throat> unfortunately, this, this virus has shut the pub. Yeah. Major disaster, because that's our social hub. Uh, we haven't got a village hall, so we meet. We, they've got a room there that we meet in. So it started off, uh, it was actually Friends of Tiffield School, first of all, which was FOTS. Then, the, then some guys set up um, uh, a thing trading shares. So it's Tiffield Invest, Investment Traders Society, so the TITS. Okay, and then um, 
We've had some floods over the years, so um, we had a group of people who had to look after, you know, dealing with cleaning drains out and whatever. So they were the flood, flood alleviation response team of the farts. Right? And then I set up the History Society, which is the history of Tiffield Society rather than Tiffield. So it's hot. So it's just one of those things. It's a big <laughs> image. <laughs> but, you know, you, you get to know a lot of people because of it. It's a very nice... I've been here uh, since 2000... Sorry, since 1986. Bought, bought an old tumble down, uh, what was the farmhouse, and uh, been badly looked after. And I've been renovating it ever since. And it's actually got some some guys doing some repointing at the moment. For Americans who don't know, repointing is brickwork where you have to get the yeah. corners right, right? No, no. You, it, the old mo, mo, the old lime mortar between the bricks that they used. Oh, yeah. It's 130 years old. Uh, it starts decaying. And then little bees get in, masonry bees. Oh. They dig little holes in, they lay their eggs in there, hatch out, okay, and then they fly out and leave little holes everywhere. And then what's been the killer on this one, the woodpeckers coming along to eat the grubs, the bee grubs. It's just it's like a jackhammer on the wall. It's just bang, 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 bang in the morning, you know, knocking great chunks of the mortar out. So the, the place is going to fall down unless they do something about it. Well, you know, I've enjoyed over the years. I've I know all your kids really well, Dominique, Joe, and uh, Martin, and I've uh, been to the weddings. I enjoyed all of that. I really enjoyed the family, and now you and Kate are firmly ensconced there in Tiffield. I have always wanted to talk to you when I originally uh, got the list out of people to talk to for this podcast. I had you down as representative for landscape architecture and the like. <laughs> But I also want to uh, say how much I appreciate knowing you over the years because, as I said, you introduced me to Monty Python, the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. You taught me how to brew beer. I don't do it very much anymore, but that, of course, was a great achievement for me. The, Go ahead. There's a little story about that. <clears throat> when, when I was on the exchange, I was supposed to kind of um, register from a course and pick up some money. It didn't happen. It didn't happen until the following Easter. This was in the fall semester, you know, term. And it wasn't there, so I had no money, I had no work permit until then. You were very helpful to me. You gave, you loaned me loads of money and helped me out and did things. It was brilliant. So I, I couldn't work out, you know, I've got to earn some money somehow. So I went past a health food shop in Berkeley, and they sold malt extract for as a health food supplement. And that's what I used to use for making beer with. So I thought, ah, ding dong. <laughs> it was very popular. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're a damn good beer maker. Just for uh, American audience, you, there's a difference between British beer and sort of continental German Belgian type beers. British oh, beers, yeah. ales, and stouts. Your your craft beer in California is brilliant. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's, you you've you've sw swept past us. Well, it's improved yeah. a lot over the years, and a lot oh, of it is because superb breweries over there. It's it's definitely better. The microbrewery scene here has improved vastly in the last oh, yeah. generation and a half, maybe. So I, I remember at your wedding, the um, what was that stuff I was drinking? Rasputin's Revenge. <laughs> oh, I still remember the headache. <laughs> yeah, that's North Coast Brewery up here in Fort Bragg, actually. Uh, excellent stuff. That's a Have good one on me. <laughs> and on that note, Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank Steve Jowers, a.k.a. Lime, for uh, spending some time with Snap Sessions, talking about landscape architecture, town planning, and all around being a great guy. So great to have you here, Lime. 
Well, thank you, Doug. You're a great friend. And it's just uh, from that first meeting, we know you all, all our lives. And yeah. you've been really part of the family, so it's great yeah. stuff. You're the American uncle. Thank you okay. very much. But, but I mean, you're not Uncle Sam. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Lemington. Thanks to our tech meister, Marshall Downtown Brown. And thanks to our jack of all trades, Ken Krause. Special thanks to our artist of the episode, Steve Lime Jowers. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Scour magazines. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again.